Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 7. We're going to read together there, Revelation chapter 7, as we go through this great book of the Bible. And I'm going to read beginning with with, uh, verse 13, and we'll talk this morning about standing before the throne. One day we will stand before the Lord. All of us will stand before the Lord. In fact, the Bible says some will stand before the Lord uh, and only know him as judge. And I, I tell you on the authority of God's word that there will be some who will be separated from God for eternity in hell because of sin. In fact, uh, that's the destiny for all who would reject God's grace. But some will stand before the Lord, not knowing him only as judge, but also as Savior and Father and friend. And so I want us to look at what the Bible says in Revelation chapter 7. We'll see more of that. Let's read beginning with verse 13. The Bible says, Then one of the elders asked me, Who are these people in white robes and where do they come from? I said to him, Sir, you know. Then he told me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. The ones seated on the throne will shelter them. They will no longer hunger. They will no longer thirst. The sun will no longer strike them, nor will any scorching heat. For the Lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them. He will guide them to springs of the waters of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Well, I'm going to talk with you this morning about five things that happen to those who stand before the throne of God, those who know the Lord as Savior, as Father, and uh, what that looks like. If you've not trusted Christ as Savior, we pray that even seeing this will remind you of your need for Him, that you'll want to come to know Him as Savior. But I want you to note five things that will happen to those who stand before the throne one day, those who know Him as Savior, and I encourage you to write these five things down. Number one, would you note, we are forgiven. We are forgiven. Verse 13 says, one of the elders asked me. The elders remember before the throne, which we were looking at earlier in this uh, book of the Bible, the elders who are standing before the Lord representing all who know Christ as Savior, all humans who know him as Savior. And the Bible says, he asked John, who are these people in white robes and where do they come from? And John said to him, sir, you know, And he told me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. So here's how I see the order of events. There'll be a rapture of the church. And those who know Christ's Savior as Savior will meet him in the air. And there'll be many who are left behind. It'll be a cataclysmic event in human history. There'll be many who will be left behind. Great problems will happen. A great tribulation will follow. Many will lose their lives. Great difficulties, great trials, great problems. But within that, I believe there'll be some who will come to know the Lord as Savior. In fact, that's who these are standing before the throne. Many will be hardened in their relationship towards God. Some will be saved even out of that terrible event. And uh, the Bible says, they washed their robes, verse 14, they washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Let's note a couple things here. Note the white robes. These aren't robes that they're bringing from earth, of course. These are the the, the robes that have been washed, made white in the blood of the Lamb. This white robe symbolizes the full forgiveness that comes through faith in Christ. There's no guilt. There's no shame. There's no punishment. There's no condemnation. And they stand before the Lord clothed in righteousness, the righteousness of God given to those who know Christ as Savior, God's holiness imputed to us as though they had never sinned. No guilt, no shame, no punishment, no condemnation. Notice how that happened. By 
the blood of the lamb. They made them white in the blood of the lamb. That is, they're not wearing white robes by their merit. It isn't that they have lived perfect lives because none of us have. In fact, those who are in the great tribulation are those who have not received Christ as Savior, who have, I believe, missed the time of rapture, and, and they are certainly sinners, just like all of us, just like all of us. We don't come before the Lord as though we had never sinned. We're not standing before Him in righteousness based on our own talents or abilities, not even in our religious acts, but it's the blood of the Lamb. We are forgiven by His sacrifice. The Lamb, of course, is the Lord Jesus. Christ, remember, the Passover Lamb who was slain for us, who died in our place, the perfect one who perfectly took our sins upon Himself on the cross, who died in our place, perfectly forgives. And so the Bible says, who are these people? These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They washed the robes, made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So I want to kind of apply this in four ways, four things I'd like you to note. Number one, I want you to remember the ugliness of your sin. The ugliness of your sin. It's worse than you think. It's worse than you think. In our society, we sort of say, well, I mean, I guess, you know, sin's not a good thing, but it's not that big of a deal. And the Bible said, tells us that it is a, it is worse than you think. Worse than you, the more you get to know God's word and the more you get to know God and his holiness, the more you see the ugliness of sin itself. And it's worse than you think. Don't, don't think of it. It's, the Bible doesn't describe it as no big deal. It doesn't really matter. It's what has led to the great tribulation. It's what's led to separation from God. Secondly, note that uh, we're to be thankful for the sacrifice of Jesus. So if I, if I would say the ugliness of sin is worse than you think, sin is worse than you think, God's grace is greater than you think. It's greater than you think. So when you see, the more you see of who God is, the more you'll see the ugliness of sin, it's worse than you think, and the more you'll see the greatness of God's grace, the sacrifice of Jesus on your behalf, and it's greater than you think. So sin is worse, and grace is greater. And the closer you get to God, the more you see this. Those coming out of the great tribulation would certainly have seen this. Number three, would you note that we're to put down the baggage of our past? Put down the baggage of our past. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. By the blood of Jesus, those in Christ Jesus, those who know him as Savior, no condemnation. Sometimes I'll see kids uh, in school or on their way to school or coming home from school wearing gigantic backpacks. It's not an uncommon thing. Little teeny kids wearing gigantic backpacks filled with books and computers and kitchen sinks or something whatever they wear little kid just bent over with this gigantic backpack carrying everything that they possess in life they're carrying it in that backpack just in case they need it and it's a metaphor i think for what happens often in christ you are forgiven of every sin no guilt no shame no punishment no condemnation but the enemy has a way of saying to you hey don't think God forgives you fully. Don't, don't you remember? And he'll point out to you all the problems, all the mistakes, all the failures, all the brokenness, and he'll start packing that sort of metaphorical backpack in your, of your life with all of your past because he wants you to carry that burden as though the blood of Jesus wasn't sufficient to carry that burden and live under that weight 
and never run the race of life effectively because you're carrying all of your past, all of the shame, all of the guilt. Now, it's not that we don't know that sin is wrong. Of course, absolutely. It is that we recognize what Christ has done. And the Lord allows us to put down the baggage of our past and recognize what Christ has done. To be thankful for the grace of Jesus. It's greater than our sin. And when we see that, we can put down the baggage of our past. We can learn from our past, but we don't have to carry that any longer. You don't have to carry the guilt and shame of your past and of your sins and of your brokenness. The Lord knows full well all of that, and yet He is able to forgive, and the blood of Jesus is sufficient. These standing before the Lord, before the throne, are those who have gone through this terrible tribulation. And they must have recognized more fully than most how much they had to be forgiven, how much they needed forgiveness and the ugliness of their sins. And perhaps they were more thankful than most. And the Lord reminds you, you can put down the baggage of your past. And then number four, choose to forgive others as as you've been forgiven. Choose to forgive others as you've been forgiven. When we forgive, we're not saying... um, We're not saying we trust necessarily. Trust is earned. We trust people when they're trustworthy. We're not saying when we forgive that sin, you know, it wasn't really sinful. Not at all. We're saying we're not going to live under the burden, the bondage of unforgiveness. We're not going to carry those chains, that weight, that baggage. And we're going to choose to forgive. Now, how in the world could we forgive? How could we forgive people who have wronged us or hurt us or harmed us? Well, maybe we can't, but the Lord Jesus in us can. And the more we see what Christ has done for us and the forgiveness he offered, the more we can choose to forgive others. And there's a power to that and a blessing to that. And I want to encourage you to find this, to give this forgiveness that God has given to you if you know him as Savior. And imagine that one day when we stand, you know, when you stand before the Lord one day, if you know him as Savior, you won't stand before the Lord with all the baggage, all the burden, but fully forgiven, clothed in that white robe as though you'd never sinned. How? Because you're so good? Or because you were so religious? No, but because the blood of Jesus was shed on your behalf on the cross of Calvary. And he paid the debt. And he forgives the sin. And he makes all things new. And there's a second thing I'd like you to note that will happen when we stand before the throne of God. Number two, we are sheltered. We are sheltered. Verse 15 says this. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. Let me just stop there for a moment and note the the service. They serve the Lord willingly. They serve the Lord day and night in his temple. The Bible told us last week we noted they worship the Lord. There is a desire to worship. They humble themselves. They kneel before the Lord. They worship him. So let me talk for a moment about the motivation. I think sometimes we get confused about the motivation. Now, we can uh, be motivated by guilt. And can I just tell you, guilt's not entirely bad. When I'm wrong, when I'm guilty, uh, guilt is an emotion that helps me to understand my, what I've done wrong. But it's not a good long-term motivator. So I may, maybe I could get you to worship, attend worship out of guilt, or maybe I could get you to serve for a while. You know, you, you should use your gifts and talents for the Lord, and I, maybe I could get you to serve short-term out of guilt, or maybe I could get you to give uh, out of guilt. But those tend, that motivation tends to be short-term. Now, when we're guilty, we need to recognize that we're guilty. There's a healthy side to that. 
But if it stays at guilt, it's just a short-term motivation. Well, what's the motivation for these who are serving and worshiping and giving? What is their motivation? Verse 15 says, for this reason. That is, their thankfulness, their gratefulness to what God has done for them is what motivates them. Now, I might, I might could get you to serve or give or worship short-term out of guilt. But if ever your heart becomes filled with thanksgiving, you'll be excited about worship. You'll be delighted to use your talents and abilities to serve. And you'll give generously if your motivation is this recognition of what God has done for you and your great thankfulness for him. So it wasn't as though the Lord had to twist the arms of those coming out of the great tribulation to serve. It was their deep thankfulness that led them to serve. For this reason, they're before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And then notice what verse 15 says. The one seated on the throne will shelter them. He'll shelter them. The word shelter means to spread his tent over. It's about being at home. The, we don't think of a tent as a home, but it was not uncommon at all in that, desert, in that deserty uh, Middle East climate to have a tent. In fact, still, there's still people who have their home as a tent. They might, maybe it's a nicer tent than you're thinking, and there might be a satellite dish on top of that tent, but nonetheless, it, a home still to this day. And the Lord is saying, the one seated on the throne will shelter them. God shelters them. He gives them a home. Maybe you'll go on a trip this summer, perhaps, and you'll go somewhere to see family or to see some place. And there's something nice about coming home. Vicki and I love to travel. We love to go places. We, we really enjoy that. But there's something really great. We always enjoy coming back home. Because wherever we go, staying at someone else's home or staying in a hotel, it's not home. And there's something nice about coming back to the place that's for us. And I, I just want to tell you something that you, you know instinctively, deep inside you recognize this. But this is, not the, this is not our home. God made us for something beyond this place. That's why there's this longing deep within us. Because we're never quite at home here. We feel a little bit like foreigners in this land. Because we are. God made us for something beyond this world. God made us for a home that he wants us, that we deep inside long for. And that he's prepared for us. The great evangelist D.L. Moody of the previous century said this he said um, my citizenship is in heaven but I vote in Cook County that's what he said and what he was saying was I'm a citizen of heaven that's my home but I have responsibilities here in this place and so let's let's kind of turn that to the other side of the coin and we could say it like this I could say I vote in St. Clair County but my home is in heaven. So yes, I have responsibilities now. Moody was saying, I have some, I'm a citizen of heaven, but I have responsibilities here. Now I want to recognize that I have responsibilities here. God put me here for a reason. I don't want to waste my life or my opportunities or my days here, nor should you. But this isn't home. And there's this longing deep within you for something more. It is not uncommon. I've many, many times I've been with some uh, someone who has known Christ as Savior for a long, long time, who's near the end of their race, who says something like this, I can't, I can't wait to go home. And they're not talking about their house because there's this longing for something more. As long as God has you here, and serve him well. Don't waste 
the opportunities that come with this day. But God made you for something more. God made you for a, a home beyond this world. We're forgiven. We're sheltered. Number three, we are satisfied. This is what happens to those who stand before the throne. We're satisfied. Verse uh, 16 says, They will no longer hunger. They will no longer thirst. The sun will no longer strike them, nor will any scorching heat. So you know about hunger, right? I like to eat. I enjoy eating. And sometimes when I get really hungry, I'll go to a buffet where you can just eat all you want to eat. And I am, not only do I like to eat, but I like a bargain. And the more you eat at a buffet, the better the bang for the buck, right? I mean, the more you get out of it. Now, here's the problem, though. No matter how much I eat, I'm still going to get hungry. I'm, I mean, I might be satisfied for a little while, but I'm going to want to eat again. Sometimes you get thirsty. It won't be long till it's the summertime here and we'll have the high humidity and you'll be outside, you'll be at a barbecue, you'll be working in the yard, whatever it is, and you get thirsty and you might get cold water and just drink and drink and drink. And it's satisfying for a while. But no matter how much water you drink, you're going to be thirsty again. And maybe it'll be a hot day and you'll come inside to the air conditioning and you poor young people have missed the days of window units when you could just go from outside and heat and just go stand right in front of that window unit and it would just freeze your hair back. It was just awesome to have that. But you still, at some point, you'd get hot again because this world can never quite satisfy. It can never quite satisfy. We always want more. We always want more. Well, why is that? Why is it that this world never fully satisfies? Because we were made for something more. God made us for something more. We're always going to want more. My father used to tell this story about John Rockefeller, who was then the richest man in the world. He never met Rockefeller. It's just a story about Rockefeller. And I don't know if this is accurate, but it has the ring of truth. He said, uh, supposedly Rockefeller was asked one time, how much more money do you need? And he said, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Many who have been rich or famous or powerful never quite get enough. We need a little bit more. Pleasure is never quite, quite enough. We need a little bit more. Power, never quite enough. A little bit more. It's always more possessions, always a little bit more. We'll, we're never fully satisfied. Can I show you the opposite side of this? Heaven will fully satisfy. It will fully satisfy. No, no longer hunger. No longer thirst. No longer heat. The Bible is saying heaven will satisfy fully. Maybe you've never seen that about heaven. You thought heaven beats the alternative, but when in reality it is the only place that can satisfy. And that's why there is within us this longing. Even if you don't yet know Christ as Savior, there's this longing for something more. You thought if I could just get that promotion or if I could just uh, have that relationship or if I could just have those things, it'll be enough. And it never is. Because God made you for something more. And until you find Christ as Savior, you'll never be satisfied. And this world can never satisfy fully. There's always this longing for something more. There's a fourth thing I want you to note that will happen when we stand before the throne one day. We are shepherded. Shepherded. That's a hard one to say. 
Verse 17 says, For the Lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them, and he will guide them to springs of the waters of life. So the Bible describes God here, the, the Lord Jesus here, as uh, both a lamb and a shepherd. Now he's described as the lamb. Remember we saw him as the Passover lamb. The, his blood shed for us, the means by which death passes over us, we can be forgiven. He is the lamb, but he's also the shepherd. And the Bible uses this imagery a lot. You may remember shepherding, of course, was a big part of life. The, um, the announcement of the angels of the birth of Jesus was the shepherds. David, before he became a king, was a shepherd boy. And God is described, the Lord Jesus is described to us as a shepherd. As a shepherd. We are described as sheep. It's not the most attractive of all analogies for us. Because sheep are not always that smart. And we don't, sheep have a tendency to go their own way and wander into danger and harm. And, and they're, uh, they're not as uh, powerful as they think. They need protection. And so it's not always the greatest we don't always like the analogy, but it's a pretty accurate one. The Bible says, we all like sheep have gone astray. And, and the Bible is telling us here that the Lord is going to shepherd us, and in heaven we'll see him as the shepherd, the, fully as the shepherd. It tells us two things about the shepherd. Number one, it tells us he guides. For the lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them. He will guide them, the Bible says. He will guide them. Now, discipleship, at the heart of discipleship, if you were to say, what is discipleship, what's that mean? It means follow Jesus. The description of Jesus, he said this many times, follow me. Just follow me. He doesn't always tell where he's going even. He just says, follow me. So I want to ask you this question. Are you following Jesus? Are you following Jesus? Maybe uh, some of you have a dog, perhaps, and perhaps you take that dog on a walk and and um, you need to burn some energy from that dog. You might walk with him on occasion. And, and maybe that dog walks you more than you walk that dog. Maybe that dog has a mind of his own or her own and just wants to go its own way. And so um, we have a kind of unruly dog. And so we have tried to learn a little bit. We watch sometimes this guy named Caesar Milan, the dog whisperer. And he'll talk about what to do and how to take an unruly dog and make things better. And he says this often. He says, uh, you need to be the pack leader, right? The pack leader. The dog's not the leader. You're to be the pack leader. The dog's not equipped to be the pack leader of your home. You have that role to play. And so instead of the dog guiding you, you need to guide the dog. Now, can I just say, spiritually speaking, when I said, are you following Jesus? Some of you said maybe something like this. I mean, in, in your mind, you said something like this, perhaps. Well, I mean, sort of. Sort of. Like, I, I follow him when he's going the way I want him to go. You know, I follow him when it's convenient and it's easy. But sometimes you, you might say, you know, sometimes I'm the one pulling the opposite way. And I sort of forget that I'm supposed to follow him. And I just go my way and then ask God to sort of bless the way I'm going. And Maybe if I get in trouble, I might ask him for some help. But I kind of follow my own way, go my own path. And listen, the good shepherd says, you, you want to be a disciple? Here's, here's what it means. Follow me. You might not know all the details about where that's going to lead or what God wants, but follow me. I want you to go where I want you to where I have for you to go. In fact, not only will I have you know he guides, but the secondly, note he provides. The Bible says he will guide them to springs 
of the waters of life. Now notice, he's guiding them to the provision they need. We could say it this way. God's way is best for you. Now maybe you've not thought that. I think I thought for a long time in my early uh, Christian walk, I thought, I know God's way is the right way, but I don't think it's the best way. I mean, I know it's right to follow God, but I don't think like, I'm, it's really not going to be a good way. I found out along the way that not only is God's way the right way, it's best for me. He's guiding me to the, things, the very things that I need, to the very provision that he wants me to have. It's not always the easy way, of course. And sometimes God's way is more challenging. Sometimes his way even leads to struggles and difficulties. But it is what's best for me if I could see it from his perspective. And so God guides and God provides. And he is the good shepherd. And God wants what's best for you. You might not see that fully. But in heaven, these coming out of the great tribulation, they could see clearly God's way is the right way. And it's the best way for me. He cares about me. His way is the right way. And he is the great shepherd. Now there's a fifth thing I want you to note. And I love this from God's word. Number five, we are comforted. We are comforted. So I want you to go with me to that last line of verse 17. The Bible says, The lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them. He will guide them to springs of the waters of life. And then note this. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Every tear from their eyes. The older I get, the more I cry. Isn't that an odd phenomenon? Now, I cried a lot when I was a little kid. My mom tells me I cried a lot. I had mean brothers, and that was part of it, but I, I cried plenty of times. But then for a long time, I just didn't cry that much. And now as I get older, I cry. Like a sappy movie, just I will just start crying. And, of course, like a country song, of course, I'm going to cry at a country song. You know, when the dog leaves, I just cry over that. A truck breaks down. That just tears me up when the truck breaks down. So I'll cry over country songs, of course. But the Bible says there'll come a day when there'll be no more tears, no more sorrow, and no more pain. You know, in this, it's not just those things that I cry over as well. Um, I'm old enough now to have seen a good deal of pain in my life. People I've cared about who have gone through difficulties and struggles and hurt. And many of you have seen that already in your life as well. You know something about tears. You know something about pain. You know something about hurt. And I want, I want to mention three things about God that I, I want you to get. Number one, God understands. God understands. Jesus suffered Jesus knew pain. Jesus faced rejection. And Jesus wept. And he understands. Unique among all the faiths of the world is a God who understands. Who understands something of our pain and our sorrow. Who sent his son into this world to suffer no pain. The Bible does not cover that. I mean, it's not covered up in the Bible. The Bible tells us in great detail about the suffering of the cross, the pain of the cross. Who knew rejection? 
Jesus knew something about rejection. Some of you have gone through suffering or you've gone through pain or you've gone through rejection and you've had your heart broken. The Bible tells us of, a, of Jesus weeping. He, he understands. He understands. There's a second thing I want you to note. God cares. God cares. I said Jesus suffered, but note this. Jesus suffered for a reason. He suffered for you. He did not die on the cross for his sins. He died for mine. His suffering was not for his sins. It was for yours. He cares. So maybe you've said, if God cares, how come I face pain and sorrow and difficulty? Can I just say, aside from the fact that we live in a broken world, and I don't have to tell you this is a broken world, do I? You know that. This is a broken world. There's pain and sorrow and hurt in this world. But maybe you've said, why God? If God cares, why do I go through this pain, or why this difficulty, or why this struggle, or why this problem? And often we can say, we don't really, we don't know the details of why. We know that God is big enough, the very fact that he's God, he's big enough to stop the pain. And yet, I'm facing this pain. It is possible that God, being God, knows things that you don't know, and things that perhaps we don't understand and that maybe we won't understand until eternity. It is possible that God will use that in a way that we can't fully see. But I can tell you, while I can't always tell you why things happen, I can, can I tell you why it doesn't happen? It doesn't happen because he doesn't care. You're not suffering because he doesn't care. Because God demonstrated his love for you on the cross of Calvary. And if you ever wonder, why does God live, does he care about me? Does he love me? The cross of Jesus is the great evidence of his love for you. The cross of, of Calvary, the great evidence. And so for whatever reason, in ways that I may not fully understand why I'm facing adversity or suffering or pain or hurt or rejection or knowing that God is big enough to take all of that away. I know the one reason it's not. It's not because he doesn't care. And I'll see that more fully in heaven one day. These coming out of the great tribulation, they knew something about suffering. They knew something about suffering. They knew something about pain and rejection and heartbreak and weeping. And they saw God who cared. And then number three, note God comforts. And I love this about God. God comforts in a way that only a God who understands and only a God who cares can comfort. God comforts. The Bible says God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Not just some, every tear from their eyes. And in this broken world, there are plenty of tears. Every tear. No more tears in heaven. No more brokenness in heaven. No more sorrow in heaven. No more guilt or shame in heaven. God comforts every tear. It's the promise that God gives. 
It's a hope for eternity. It's the reminder of the greatness of heaven. If for no other reason, if the only reason to give your life to Christ was because God cares and will wipe away every tear, if that were the only reason, it would be reason enough today to repent of your sin and place your trust in Christ and receive Him as Savior. If it was the, if it was the only reason to follow Him, it would be reason enough. I'm thankful for this view of heaven. And one day, one day, no more tears. In fact, not just no more tears, but wiped away by the God who understands and the God who cares. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Some of you come to this place with pain and brokenness and hurt. But the Lord shows you this great picture of the one day. And I wonder if today you wouldn't say, God, I cannot fully understand all the pain, the brokenness, the hurt. But I know it's not because you don't care. Because you went to the cross for me. And so I want to follow you. I want to follow you in this broken world, in this world filled with pain, in this very world where you wept. I want to follow you. If you've never trusted Christ as Savior, can I urge you today to give your life to Christ? Repent of your sin. Place your trust in Jesus. Ask him to save you, and he will. One day we'll stand before the throne, and we ask you to join us in that great celebration of those who know the Lord, not only as judge, but know him as Savior. And Father, I want to thank you for this picture of heaven and how you use it in our lives today so that we can become more of what you want us to become in this world. Help us to live in this world, knowing that one day we will stand before you so that we don't waste this day, so that we don't miss the opportunities, so that your name is glorified in us and through us. Help us to respond to how much you love us by loving you and loving others. And we'll give you the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.